You're listening to a Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 10th annual Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the 19th and 20th of August 2022. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Breed McGrath from Trinity College Dublin, entitled The Compilation of the Journals of the Irish House of Commons, 1613-1615. I have a couple of thanks um, before I start. One is to Neil for his help in um, one of the journals, the, the one in queue, um, to Ken Nichols, who first alerted me to the existence of another copy of the journals in the King's Inns, which is a particularly interesting one, um, and to Brian McCourta, whom I dragged away from his research to hold the page so that I could take pictures of the watermarks of the one in queue. So I'm grateful to all of those for, um, for their help. So um, parliaments were rare in early modern Ireland um, and that which met on the 18th of May 1613 was the only one summoned during the governorship of Sir Arthur Chichester who was Lord Deputy between 1606 and 1616 and the first which comprised representatives from the whole island of Ireland. It met immediately after the plantation of Ulster in 1611 and the advertisement of the proposed plantation of Wexford. Urban development was a key element of the plantation plans and partly in fulfilment of this, but entirely to engineer a Protestant majority in the House of Commons. Uh, 31 new boroughs were created with parliamentary representation. As the monarch, unlike in England, but as in Scotland, had no right to create parliamentary boroughs, the Crown's electoral strategy involved constitutional innovation, that's code for acting illegally, okay? <laughs> Rigging elections by breaching the legislation governing elections and eligibility for return as MPs, intimidation and violence. Catholics de- um, determined an effective electoral campaign was more successful than the administration had anticipated and its desired majority was achieved by covertly incorporating nine additional boroughs immediately before Parliament met, a stratagem revealed only when the Commons assembled. Catholics refused to accept this blatant rigging and the consequent choice of a speaker whose own election they complained was fraudulent, and they seceded from Parliament. After an appeal to the King in London, Parliament finally reassembled in October 1614 and then sat until prorogued in May 1615. It was dissolved on the 24th of October 1615, the first day of the new session. Parliamentary journals were the responsibility of the clerks of the Parliament, um, whose competencies, diligence and interest varied. So um, here's their, their job. Uh, administering, um, managing administration records, agreeing the agenda with the Speaker, recording proceedings, reading bills and communications in Parliament, safeguarding bills and acts, managing money, certifying MPs' wages, providing copies of orders, records, decisions, declarations, after Parliament, compiling fair copies of the journals and managing the archive. 
Irish parliamentary journals, like other government records, were very poorly managed up to the end of the 16th century. Many were lost, stolen, removed by retired office holders as part of their personal papers. The 1585 Commons journals could not be located in 1613, even though Chichester, the son of the then Lord Deputy um, John Perrot, presumably had access to Perrot's papers. Surviving records were held in insecure and frankly dangerous conditions. Uh, as you can see here, uh, this is about 1610. This is from uh, Rawlinson manuscript in the Bodleian. There is no Parliament records here, but a few, and those since the time of Henry VI, remaining in the Master of the Rolls office here, and not else to be found, saving for other records remaining with the Chief Remembrancer, the Auditor, or some few in the Office of Chief Place, there called the Queen's Bench, concerning matters of attainder, and a few in the Commonplace concerning some late utlaggeries. I think that might be outlawries, but... Um, she for Aiken can conduct, uh, correct me on that if she hears this. Uh, and some imputation made to Sir William Gerard, late Lord Chancellor here, who they say took the chief records into England with him and cannot now be had, but did abstract diverse into a writing book. The situation improved markedly after Thomas Chetham's appointment in 1594 as Clerk of the Parliament, and he was a diligent official who copied as many missing records as he possibly could. William Bradley was appointed Clerk of the Commons in 1610 and had little time to familiarise himself with the responsibilities or parliamentary procedure or to refer, repair deficiencies in the archive. And when he became ill in November 1614, he was replaced by Edmund Metop, another conscientious officer who worked closely with Chetham on the forms of journals and managing the records. All the official journals from 1613... Um, were kept in Dublin Castle and transferred, unfortunately, to the Public Record Office, where we know what happened to them. Um, they were published in several editions from 1752, and this is fortunate, not least because all the pre-1800 journals perished in the disastrous fire in 1922, depriving us of the final official versions, but also the finest examples of 18th century Irish bookbinding. An absolutely huge loss. However, the published journals, while invaluable and widely used, differ from the manuscript copies, and the loss of the originals precludes the possibility of identifying and understanding discrepancies between manuscript and printed journals, and between the clerk's original notes and the final fair copies. No contemporary manuscript journals survive for um, 1634 to 5 and 1640 to 48, but miraculously, this is the commons there are some of the lords okay but miraculously four of the known six copies and there may have been others of the 1613 to 15 commons journals do the earliest extant ones and they allow us to reconstruct the process of their compilation the four exemplars are the clerk's original draft journal held in the national archives in Kew, and copies of madop's fair journals in the collections of the king's inns the national library of ireland at dublin and the Armagh robinson library at least two other copies made by Metop have sadly not survived, the official file copy and an unbound copy owned by the parliamentarian, antiquarian and crown official Sir James Ware. Medop probably made other copies, as I will discuss below. Contemporary abstracts are held in the British Library, Bodleian Library, University of Oxford and Gilbert Library in Dublin. Extracts from the 1613 and later Stuart Irish Parliaments made by the political thinker William Molyneux in the late 17th century are held in Trinity College, Dublin, and two 18th century copies are held in Trinity College, Dublin, and in the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington. Taken together, the surviving copies tell us a great deal about how Parliament's business was recorded. 
uh, edited and disseminated what contemporaries thought necessary in such journals and incidentally provide insights on how patronage operated at the time. Early Stuart parliamentary journals follow the English format, commencing with the day's date in Latin and thereafter entries are in English unless quoting Latin speech. So this is the journal format. This is from the National Library of Ireland copy, so this is the fair format. Okay? Journals served as minutes recording decisions, stages of bills, acts passed, motions, committee formation and membership, orders, resolutions, censure of members or outsiders, rather than as reports of proceedings, and they provide relatively little detail on debates, speeches, committee activities and reports. All are partial and incomplete records of the House's activity. The 1613 journals, especially the Clark's originals, record more and greater details of contributors and speeches than later ones, but the lack of manuscripts prevent our identifying precise differences between those originals and the later printed journals. So it's only for 1613 that we can actually do this, which is wonderful. Bradley had no models on which to base his work, but had been trained by the English Clark, Ray Fewens, and had guidance from Chetham, whom he clearly consulted about the format to be used. The sick Bradley was replaced for four days by Matthew Davis and then by Medop, and the surviving journals are Bradley and Medop's joint work. Understandably, their records are almost entirely common in format and content, but a number of very significant differences, which cannot be discerned from the published journals, are explained by contemporary social, ethnic and political biases and their intended recipients. Parliamentary clerks swore to make a true entry of all such orders, so this is roughly what they're saying, and this is it's actually much longer. This is from the Beinecke, and this is the clerk of the English Parliament's oath saying what he will you know, keep the secrets of the House and so on. Um, accuracy was ensured by MPs with frequent references to houses checking and correcting the journals. Both Crown and parliamentarians understood the journal's importance as Parliament's formal record and were prepared to change it either to guarantee accuracy or to change the record. Catholic MPs insisted that the violence of the opening session might not be, this quote, might not be concealed from after posterity. After what sort everything was done, a solemn protestation of the Catholics should be recorded in the public acts and in the handwritten book of the Parliament, which for an everlasting memorial of the same should remain extant. And Bradley, and with one exception, met up observed this agreement. Journals were produced in three stages. Clerks made rough notes during each sitting day on loose sheets of paper, which they soon after transcribed into the rough draft journal, which was available for consultation and checking by MPs. So here on uh, one side, you have Bradley's notes from the Q um, exemplar, and there you have Metop's final copy from the National Library for the same day. So you can see how different they are there. Okay. Uh, thank God for digital cameras. No, really. You know, those of us who started without them really believe this, you know. So um, the fair copy was compiled as the official record after Parliament's dissolution with an index to ensure that entries could be traced efficiently when needed, for example, for precedence. At that point, members would have been unable to check or correct the record or even ensure that a fair copy was made. Bradley and Meadow carefully collated all the relevant material, including the official list of returns, an account of the fraught contest for the speakership and the Catholic secession, accounts of each day's proceedings, copies of parliamentary orders and petitions. After Parliament's dissolution in October 1615, Medop bound Bradley's and his own rough notes and other documents into one volume with a limp binding. Their notes are all on paper with the same 
watermark, which I know thanks to Brian McCourt's help, while material from other sources, such as the list of members and petitions, are on paper with at least five different watermarks. Copies of parliamentary orders have the same watermark as the clerk's notes. The list of returns from Francis Edgeworth, the clerk of the Hanover in the Chancery, was reproduced in all the exemplars and used by Medop as a checklist of members, including recording attendance and compiling their lists of their wages. Equally significant, that list layout demonstrates that the plan to incorporate nine additional boroughs was known to officials in advance, as space is left for their insertion and those entries are made in a different ink. As noted, Catholic MPs insisted that the account of the differing ceremonies and contests for the speakership be included in the journals, and it is present in all but one copy, but omitted from the published versions. McCavitt ascribed its absence to censorship. Censorship is apparent, but not in the way that he asserted. Medop used the material in the brown volume to make at least four fair copies between October 1615 and his death in September 1621. The scribe for Ware's exemplar is unknown. The surviving copies are all on paper with completely different watermarks, demonstrating that they're each completed separately at different times around Medop's other clerical duties. But following English practice, the official file copy may actually have been on parchment. We can't know. It's unclear from which originals the surviving contemporary extracts were copied, but it seems likely that it was the King's Inn's exemplar, which was the first. Other copies were presumably made for the speaker, John Davies, and for Medop itself, but the National Library of Ireland at home are copies suggest that at least one other was made, and the number and range of contemporary extracts supports this theory. The King's Inn's copy is not in Medhop's hand, so an underclerk wrote it under his supervision, either largely after the prorogation in May and finished immediately after the dissolution in October 1615, or entirely after October 1615, but before the 24th of March 1616, as Medhop checked the volume and endorsed two entries as clericus parliamentis with the year 1615. The entries are clear and close to the draft, albeit sometimes differently phrased, and with clear omissions, and this exemplar may have been transcribed from the missing original. The date of Ware's copy is unknown, but probably also between 1616 um, and Medop's death in 1621, as his replacement wasn't appointed until 1628. As it was unbound, it was neither the Q, Rough Journal, nor one of Medop's fair copies, all of which were bound. Chichester, horrible man, <laughs> had no surviving children, but was very supportive of his nieces and nephews and cousins, several of whom, an unbelievable number, were MPs in 1613, and of his wife's nieces' husbands. Medop himself, Francis Amsley, later Lord Mount Norris, MP for Lismore, one of the covertly incorporated boroughs, and then for Armagh County. Ansley was determined to have him in there. Sorry, um, Chichester was determined to have him in there. And Sir James Hamilton, later Lord Clandeboy, MP for County Down. Medop's family tree showing his descent, I think we can use that in both senses, from Edward III, and linking himself to Chichester, Ansley and Hamilton is provided in the front of both the Armagh and National Library of Ireland copies. Imagine putting your family tree in the front of this, you know? But not the King's Inns one. The connection between Chichester, Medhop, Ansley and Hamilton are so emphasised in these copies that it seems that it likely that at least two other copies were made so that all four would have one. The Armagh copy was made for Chichester. It includes a later Chichester bookmark, so you can see here Chichester's coat of arms and the bookmark in, um, in Armagh. Um, and uh, 
the National Library of Ireland copy, probably for Medop, Ansley or Hamilton. Ansley and Hamilton's children's births provided in the pedigrees indicate that the National Library exemplar was made in or after 1618 and the Armagh copy between 1619 and September 1621, probably in or by 1620. Medop and Chetham agreed on the optimal form of journals, including lists of members and an index. Medop's file copy became the model from which all subsequent clerks copied or deviated from. Molyneux observed that the 1640 journal, quote, has neither the list of the names nor members nor any index, which he clearly regarded as intrinsic. When writing up the fair version, some changes were made and details lost, which generally reflect the administration's bias towards promoting Protestants at the expense of Catholics. Inevitably, given the use of loose sheets, some records were lost, notably the days following the 18th of May 1613, while the House sat while the administration was furiously trying to persuade Catholics to attend unsuccessfully. Although both houses continued sitting into June, debating bills and petitions, there are no records of those proceedings other than the index to the House of Lords journal. The entries for the 11th and 12th of October 1614 were missing when the papers were bound, but clearly later found by Medop and included in his fair copies. Even conscientious clerks like Medop miss some entries, and some entries which appear to provide full accounts of business have many omissions. So um, the entry for the 15th of October in the Rough Journal provides much greater detail than the fair versions. Institutionalised favouritism towards English Protestants is evident from the omission of some Catholics' contributions. If anything is left out, it's by Catholics. Um, As well as Medops listing new English MPs' titles and status, but not Catholics. Medops' fair copies arrange committee members' names in order of their social status rather than their nomination, and the and omit the decision to add all privy councillors to the key privileges committee on the 14th of October. This practice betrayed an institutional bias, but it also gave greater prominence to Protestants, the only group holding crown office, and who were far more likely to be knighted than Catholics. But it also creates a misleading impression of how committees are selected. Almost invariably, omitted contributions were made by Catholics, creating an erroneous impression that they were less active or that their contributions were less worthy of um, of recording. Um, Again, the Q version includes added details of the speech by the Catholic leader of the opposition and unsuccessful candidate for the speakership, Sir John Everard, which are not in the fair copies. Equally, obviously, the fair copies did not include the doodles (laughs) that Medhop drew during tedious sittings. This is from the Q version. Differences between the fair copies also relate to the account of the opening day and the contest over the speakerships, which the Catholics had insisted be included. McCavitt, working from the Q version, ascribed its omission from the published journals to contemporary censorship, but Bradley included it in his notes and Medhop in an edited form in the King's Inns and National Library copies. Both this opening session and the Catholics' allegations of illegal election returns reflected badly on Chichester, and their omission only from the Arma exemplar is highly significant as it demonstrates that this copy was prepared for him and that Medhop was anxious to present the otherwise very effective Parliament in a way that gave his uncle by marriage credit by suppressing his dodgy and illegal practices. <laughs> Editorial decisions about journals' content and layout were taken when they were prepared for publication in the 18th century. The clerk, Edward Sterling, who undertook the editorial work, and I quote, did not consider himself at liberty to determine what part of the proceedings of Parliament he was at liberty to reject and thought it safer to have even some unnecessary material inserted than rather charge of omitting anything that was necessary. 
Despite this, they omit the opening ceremony. Accounts of the magnificent opening uh, processions and proceedings in 1634 and 1640 are provided in the journals for those parliaments. The undignified and divisive choice of the Speaker and Catholic secession, as well, interestingly, as J Davies's speech on the prorogation in 16 May 1615. Sterling's motives for excluding these entries is unclear. Medop also used these tailored versions to blow his own trumpet and present himself not merely as his brother-in-law's equal, which he wasn't, okay? Apart from anything else, I don't think he was anything like as evil as they were, you know? Um, but also as a conscientious clerk and a scrupulous Christian. MPs voted him £10 in recognition of his diligence and hard work, um, and because no private acts had passed that in that session which would have netted him additional income. Money had previous, this money had previously been ordered to dis, be distributed to the poor, and Medop notes in the National Library of Ireland and Armagh copies that he refused the payment and ensured it went to the originally intended recipients, quote, choosing rather to benefit myself any other way than by deserve, deceiving of the poor. Okay. So, finally, the... Um, Medop owes his success and prosperity in Ireland to his connection with Chichester. After the latter's displacement in 1616, Annesley and Hamilton were rising stars, and Medop's production of these journals acknowledged his debt to Chichester, but pinned his hopes on his brothers-in-law by flattering them with his other copies. Significantly, the Armagh copy was created last. The surviving manuscript sources for Irish parliamentary journals would repay a much more detailed study but they also confirm the danger of ignoring primary sources and relying on the published versions, which can vary markedly from the originals, as this example demonstrates. Romina Margaret. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.